0: Well, a very good morning to you all, and an extremely happy Easter. If I can just get my magic book of words to start, we'll begin. On, uh, on Tuesday evening, along with some of you, Carol and I went to the latest book launch of N.T. Wright's, you know, his, his latest offering, which is called The Day the Revolution Began. The Easter story, he said, was the start of the greatest revolution that the world will ever see. What looked like an ignominious and terrifying end to the whole Jesus project was in fact the beginning of a mustard seed conspiracy that would turn the world upside down. But the nature of that revolution was not immediately obvious, even to the Twelve. They clearly expected the overturning of one visible earthly power and the replacement uh, with another. But Jesus' plan was far, far bigger than that. It wasn't about shuffling around humans or resources, nations, armies or political ideas, like some great cosmic game of risk. So everyone played risk? Everyone here played risk? Yeah, you know what I mean. It wasn't It was not that. It was about taking us off the game board altogether and restoring us to our original purpose, as image-bearers of our God, as his representatives in the physical realm. The talk on Tuesday uh, at this nt right gig where well, he's so excellent. He started in, in Genesis 1, where God made mankind as the very pinnacle of his creation, made in his own image, and set to rule over everything, every living thing. And then we looked at the end of the story in Revelation 5, where all of heaven sings praise to Jesus in much the same way as we did just then. But it's specifically because by his death... He purchased people of every nation, tribe, and tongue to be a kingdom and priests for God who would reign over the earth. So it's a complete restoration, he said, of God's original plan. Uh, One thing above all uh, that came up in the lecture particularly struck a chord with me, possibly because I did the recent talk on overcoming evil. And that was about the person and nature of our adversary, the devil commonly known as Satan, which is a word that means accuser. And in his usual way, effortlessly unpacking that large thought, just in passing, Wright pointed out something that I'd never really thought through. And that is the way that accusation functions in human interactions. Very specifically, he homed in on our tendency to treat, or at least to consider, other human beings as something a little bit less than human in the Genesis sense, less than true image-bearers of our God. So what I want us to think about this morning, in the context of the Easter story, is this universal disease of accusation. It's spread and it's cure. So our headings this morning are going to be the... You'll like this. (laughs) Some of you will like this. The dehumanizing accusations of Satan... The, their destructive acceptance by humanity, the decisive attack of Jesus, and the detoxifying, or if you prefer, decontaminating action of the Christian. Do you all like the DAs? Yeah. So, I, I, I'm now appoint myself district attorney. <clears throat> First of all, the, the dehumanizing accusations of the devil. It's easy to see how powerful and widespread this disease actually is. Because when you think about it, if the whole of humanity actually began to see the world as God does, with every human being his image-bearer, what room would that leave for things like pornography and prostitution? What could ever cause one human being to be violent towards another, or one nation to make war on another? Where would racism be, or ageism, sexism, any other kind of ism that says my gang is better than yours? Could selfishness, or abuse, or even poverty survive? It seems to me the world would be changed overnight. And of course, that's precisely the reconciliation revolution that Jesus came to bring. As C.S. Lewis points out in Screwtape, the devil doesn't actually make anything. He just distorts and perverts what God has already created. Nevertheless, this unending accusation, this assault on human identity as God-like beings at the pinnacle of his creation, is a really powerful principle. And we shouldn't be surprised to see that during his earthly life, Jesus opposed it constantly. So, for example, it is the despised Samaritan who turns out to be the good guy in the one story. In another, the wastrel son, who comes groveling back when he's spent all his inheritance, is treated with the highest honour. Then we hear that the first shall be last, and the last first. That by losing our lives, we find them. That we're to love our enemies. That the leader among us needs to be the servant of all. That the poor, the meek, the mourning, those who are crying out for justice, are blessed in the kingdom of Christ. And it's the same throughout all his life and all his teachings. The fact is that the devil, whom Jesus calls the prince of this world, has a vice-like grip on the normal rules of society. And through them, he teaches us from an early age to look down on certain people because they're just not like us. They are, as my grandmother used to say, not quite quite. But every one of those people is seen by Christ as what they are, image bearers of our God, to be treated with infinite care and respect. Jesus very quickly became known as the friend of sinners because sinners too bear the image of our God. He thought nothing of touching the untouchable, lepers or women in their ceremonial uncleanness. He even welcomed one notorious sinner to publicly, publicly wash his feet with her tears and, or wipe, his, wipe them with, his ha- with her hair. I think he would have agreed strongly with Robbie Byrne's wonderful poem, A man's a man for all that, and all that, and all that. But by accusing you to me, and me to her, and her to you, the devil has actually created a, a web of judgment and distrust that affects everything. And it is so widespread... So normal that, like the Matrix in the movie of that name, most of us don't even know we're living in it. All attempts to fix the world, playing by the rules of this Matrix, are completely doomed to failure. What is needed is, indeed, resurrection. An Easter revolution, where the image of God in human beings is fully restored. In the words of the hymn, Death of Death, I used to sing this a lot, Back in Wheels, Death of death and hell's destruction, land me safe on Canaan's side. Because nothing less than the death of death and hell's destruction is going to cut it. But Jesus came came to bring an end to these dehumanizing accusations. Next we come to number two, the destructive acceptance of them on the part of humanity as a whole. Our unthinking acceptance of these accusations about other people and groups and nations produces in society all the evils that we just alluded to a minute ago. But there's another equally pernicious effect that we might not immediately think of. It's one that I've barely considered in the 60-odd years I've been bimbling around this planet until a day or two after Professor Wright's talk, I stumbled across the following passage in Dostoevsky's wonderful book, The Brothers Karamazov. I don't know how you pronounce Kadamazov, but it's something like that. The father of the brothers that give the, t- the title to the book is called Fyodor Pavlovich, the, yeah, the eponymous brothers. Uh, father, uh, the, their father, Fyodor Pavlovich, is a boorish, immoral drunk and a most shocking liar. He's just the sort of person that you'd want to say, you ought to be ashamed of yourself. But when he meets the elder of the local monastery, a holy man with prophetic and healing gifts, something very surprising happens. He's just been his usual offensive self, much the embarrassment of his sons. But once he can get a word in edgeways, the elder says this to him. Do not be intimidated. Be just like you are at home. And above all, do not be so ashamed of yourself. For it is from that that all the rest proceeds. And the response is telling. When you made that remark, it was as if you'd penetrated right through me and read my insides. When I go among people, I do indeed feel that I'm more vile than any of them, and that you will take me for a buffoon. So I say to myself, very well, I really will. Play the buffoon. I'm not afraid of what you think of me, etc., etc. So what happened is the man of God had disclosed to him things he hardly knew about himself. A damaged Shame filled self image had indeed become the root cause of his appalling behavior for years and years. Reading those words, it immediately occurred to me, uncomfortable realization, that I've suffered from the same syndrome myself. Something like Fyodor Pavlovich, and like him, I'd never realized. And the cause, once again, is my meek acceptance of a dehumanizing accusation this time one about myself. Well, with varying degrees of success that some of you would have noticed, I have curbed the urge to make a complete idiot of myself over the years. But if I'm honest, those nagging accusations, with all their dehumanizing effects, are still there at the back of my mind. What we believe about ourselves is really important. Shame can be a powerful motivator to Repentance. A healthy reaction to sin. But if you're anything like me, many of the things we're most ashamed of are not sins at all. They're just mistakes. Many of them made years ago. And most of them never to be repeated. Because once was enough. Why should we feel ashamed, as we do, of mistakes that we've actually learned from? Well, because our accuser is telling us we should. You ought to be ashamed of yourself. And what's far more damaging still is when, like Fyodor Petrovich, we appropriate shame not just to our past actions and judge them wrong and shameful, but we appropriate it to ourselves. Say, I ought to be ashamed of myself. And it's not surprising if self-damaging and sinful actions result. Because when we start to believe what the accuser says about us, we're actively helping him to damage the Imago Day, our family likeness to our Father in heaven. This morning, I would like us to read a bit of the Bible, because, uh, you know, can't preach entirely from Dostoevsky. Wonderful, as he? Great Christian, though he is. Uh, this, so I want to read uh, Isaiah 53, which is commonly read at Easter time, the well-known passage about the suffering servant. Do you all remember that? Some of us remember that. <clears throat> but you'll notice that I'm deliberately going to give it a lot more context than it normally gets. Because I don't think it's any accident that this well-thumbed prophecy about the sufferings of the Christ for the sins of the world comes sandwiched in between two powerful references to God's plan to lift his people out of shame and restore us to honour. So this will be a long reading, but be of good cheer. I'm not going to preach on it much. Let's begin in Isaiah 52 Verse one. Then we're going to skip a bit and restart in verse thirteen. Now, just see if I can get this music stand to behave. For those of you listening to the podcast, I've got a collapsible music stand that's taking advantage of its abilities. <laughs> so, Isaiah fifty-two, verse one. Then, um, awake, awake! Put on your strength, O Zion! Put on your beautiful garments, O Jerusalem, the holy city for there shall no more come into you, the uncircumcised and the unclean. Shake yourself from the dust and arise. Be seated, O Jerusalem. Loose the bonds from your neck, O captive daughter of Zion. For thus says the Lord, you are sold for nothing and you shall be redeemed without money. The good news in this bit is that after a long period of oppression and servitude and shame, finally God's people are going to be set free. As verse 10, the Lord has bared his holy arm, which is a big Schwarzenegger kind of thing, and appeared in all his power at last before the nations on their behalf to save them. But then as we pick it up in verse 13, we find that he does this in a way that they wouldn't have expected, and nor do we. So here we are. Behold... All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We've turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. And like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. "'Sing, O barren one who did not bear. "'Break forth into singing and cry aloud, "'You have not been in labour, "'for the children of the desolate one "'will be more than the children of her "'who is married,' says the Lord. "'Enlarge the place of your tent. "'Let out the curtains of your habitation. "'Stretch them out. "'Don't hold back. "'Lengthen your cords. "'Strengthen your stakes, "'for you will spread abroad to the right and to the left, "'and your offspring will possess the nations "'and will people the desolate cities.'" Fear not, for you will not be ashamed. Be not confounded, for you will not be disgraced. For you will forget the shame of your youth and the reproach of your widowhood you will remember no more. I know many of you are uh, reading through the Bible in the year at the moment. I want you to watch out for the number of times that God says he wants to lift his people out of shame and raise them to a place of honour. It's a standing theme in scripture. And I think at least part of the reason for that comes back just to this issue of a debased human nature where the image of God has been defaced, if not obliterated, by shame. God had a purpose when he placed the first Adam and Eve in the garden. And Paul makes a powerful statement when he calls Jesus the second Adam. He's saying that in Jesus, the world could see again a human being like the first Adam was. Just as humanity was designed to be. When they sinned, Adam and Eve were ashamed, as you remember, and hid from God. Which is what shame makes us do. None of their descendants was worthy to be called a second Adam until the appearance of the God-man, Jesus himself. In him, creation finally saw that second Adam. And that second Adam calls us his brothers and sisters, children of the same father. Now, of course, unlike him, we do do things to be ashamed of. But contrary to what Teachers at my junior school used to say, I don't think we should ever be ashamed of ourselves. We're made in the image of God. We bear his likeness in the world. Three. We'll move on quicker now, I promise. The decisive assault of Jesus on this matrix of accusation and judgment, mistrust, sin, shame. As I prophesies, the arm of the Lord chapter 53, verse 1, was not revealed in a way that anyone understood when Jesus died and rose again. Even the disciples didn't really get it until they got filled with the Spirit at Pentecost. But amazingly, this sort of bruised and beaten and bloodied man dying naked on a cross before a mocking crowd was at that very moment dealing the death blow to Satan and to everything that he had unmade throughout God's creation, and especially in our humanity. As verse 5 succinctly puts it, and this is the only verse I'm going to preach on from the passage, but he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes we are healed. His wounds were enough to deal with our transgressions. That means our our line crossings, uh, where we overstep the borders that God has set, the boundaries that God has set for our lives. His crushing, as the weight of his crucified body eventually squeezed the breath from his lungs, was enough to deal with our iniquities. That's our massive injustice towards each other. And his stripes, the cuts of cane and whip and thorn, were enough To secure our healing. So far, so challenging. But perhaps the one statement in the four that we really don't believe is the third one. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. Because we all know that where we have shame, we do not have peace. It's impossible. Jesus' death then as the surrounding chapters so clearly indicate, was, among other things, supposed to free us from shame, like we sang twice today, to restore us to a place of honour, to sweep away all the dehumanising accusations of the devil. And If that's not our experience, there's a problem. And the problem is not at God's end. It must be at our end. It is our destructive acceptance of these accusations that binds us there in shame and distorts the image of God in us. Jesus was mocked and spat at beaten up eventually stripped naked in front of everyone and nailed to a cross which is a death that was reserved for the lowest of the low runaway slaves and terrorists. Yet Hebrews 12:12 12, 12 says he went to the cross despising the shame People motivated by the devil tried to pour shame on Jesus, but it was water off a duck's back to him because he knew who he was and where he was going. The same self-knowledge that made it easy for him a few days earlier to take the place of a servant and wash the disciples' feet enabled him to despise the shame of the cross as well. These petty attempts to make him look less than he was. As we just read in Isaiah fifty-two twelve, he was in death so badly beaten that you could barely tell even that he was human. Yet where it counts, in his heart and in his conduct, the image of God was undimmed in him. In fact, I think it burned more brightly in those moments than ever before. As his hour was finally come, and at last he could make his decisive assault on the devil and all his works. Now of course we still have to live with the death throes even after the death blow. But the death blow was delivered there and then. Our part now is first to counter every dehumanizing accusation wherever we see it. Yes, even in the more fun ones, you know, directed against people we dislike, say Trump or maybe May or you know, the, the people that we, people that we, we choose to dislike. It's, it's quite fun to go along with accusations. That, Let's not. We've just got to stop it. That's the devil's work. I know, I know. It's tough, isn't it? The image of God is in these people that we dislike. Love your enemies. And secondly, at a personal level, we also have a duty to defend the image of God in ourselves, even from ourselves. To put an end to our destructive acceptance of things that the devil says about us that God never says about us. Well, that's all very well, fuzzy old bean, I hear you say. But how am I to do that when these thoughts have become so ingrained in my life that I think of them as pretty much part of my character? And I hear myself replying, perhaps rashly, Glad you asked me that, because that's where we're going to finish up. Number four, the detoxifying action of the Christian. The decontaminating action of the Christian. We looked at the devil's part, the world's part, Jesus' part. Now we come to our part. About the most important thing we can do, I believe, in this matrix of accusation and falsehood, as we live through the death throes of the defeated enemy in the now and not yet of God's kingdom is to live out what God has put in us. Our role, now as ever, is to display that imago day, the image of God, with which we were stamped before we were even born to a world that desperately needs a few signposts just like us to enable them to make connections with God. If that's going to happen, the last thing people need to see is, on the one hand, shame-filled Christians, doubtful of our place in the kingdom and the family of God, or on the other hand, kind of over-bright Hallelujah Brothers types, projecting an image that's obviously false, while they're clearly dead on the inside. And what they need to see is people of joyful integrity, where what you see is not only what you get, but something that you'd want to get. Last week in his talk on the importance of the church and telling others, Jesse wisely took us to Ephesians 2. And as you might have picked up at the time, verse 10, one of my favourite verses ever, says this about our current position in Christ and in the world. We are God's workmanship, created in Christ for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. In other words, not only have we been made in God's image like every other human on the face of the planet, we who, as verse 8 puts it, have been saved by grace through faith, we have also been recreated in Christ, specifically for good works that God has already prepared for us simply to amble into and look good because the result of God's work never fails. It's like the old Blue Peter thing Here's one I prepared earlier. Anyone remember that? Whether or not the perfect item was actually made by the fair hand of the presenter, debatable. There it was, just waiting for the last dod of tinsel or strip of sticky back plastic to produce an excellent finished result. I believe this verse is saying that our God and Father desperately wants his people to look good. And most of you look great, by the way. No, you want... (laughs) i distracted myself there. <laughs> Desperately wants us to look good. He wants his children to be honoured, not shamed. Every mother and father knows that. An honoured child might be the object of quiet pride and perhaps a modest glance towards the other parents with a little head wobble. But a shamed child will be subject instantly to the parental swoop hug, filled with healing words and kisses and maybe sweeties on the way home. The trouble for us as God's children, grown up as we are, is that we don't know how to receive honour when things go well. And when they don't, we have a marked tendency to run away from the divine swoop hug of our Heavenly Father. We deserve this shame, and by daddy we're going to suffer it. I'm I'm indebted to Jesse for many things as a colleague, but as a human being, I'm especially indebted for his introducing to the church the Emotionally Healthy Spirituality course, EHS. And also for encouraging a bunch of us to read uh, the Renovari devotional classics. This, I guarantee, will change your life. I guarantee. You have to read it, though. You can't just put it under your pillow and expect it to, to filter through by osmosis. In a nutshell, I think this is the stuff that answers all my questions, all my lifelong questions about that credibility gap between my theoretical theology, what I know I'm supposed to believe and mostly do, and my lived theology, what I actually live out in practice. For a few years now, I felt a rather mysterious call to look for God, not out there somewhere, but in the deepest recesses of my heart. And the struggle was pretty intense to work out where I stood with the intimate closeness and the extreme otherness of a God, what theologians like to call God's immanence and his transcendence. And the only satisfactory answer I could find was to look for the utterly transcendent, completely other God in my own heart of hearts. And in the EHS course and the devotional classics, I finally found that I'm actually not alone in this. As many of you know, especially if you come from a more contemplative stream of Christianity, This is not exactly an edgy new idea. It has been the bread and butter, dare I say, the bread of life, of Christian thought and life for centuries. I could have chosen many other writers, but I want to conclude with a couple of quotations from one of my personal favourites, who is a man called Thomas Kelly. Deep within us all, there is an amazing inner sanctuary of the soul. A holy place, a divine centre, a speaking voice to which we may continually return. Eternity is at our hearts, pressing upon our time-torn lives, calling us home to itself. It is a light within which illumines the face of God and casts new shadows and new glories upon our faces. It is a seed stirring into life if we don't choke it. It is the Shekinah of the soul, the presence in the midst. Here is the slumbering Christ, stirring to be awakened, to become the soul we clothe in earthly form and action. And he is within us all. This practice is the heart of religion. It is the secret, I am persuaded, of the master in Galilee. He expects this secret to be freshly discovered in everyone who would be his follower. The inner light, the inward Christ, is no mere doctrine. It is the living center of reference for all Christian souls and Christian groups. The detoxifying, decontaminating action every Christian is called to take amid this matrix of dehumanising accusations, begins not with outward action, but with developing an inner life that will rule the outer. If we want to put our world to rights, we have to begin with our own hearts. And if we want to get our hearts right, we'll have to learn to live in there, to meet there often and constantly with the God whom Jesus calls our Father, who is in secret? Amen. Why don't you stand up, pray? Our Father who is in secret. we pray that you will make us people who learn to find you not only out there but in here not only in the meeting but in our own solitude in our own stillness our own silence our own study and meditation come Holy Spirit and heal us of our shame. Lead us into the place of honor that you've prepared for us. In Jesus' name, Amen. Now we haven't got long before we'll be invaded by small people with Easter eggs, but just let's take this opportunity to um, to receive from the Lord, if. If you'd like prayer for anything, if you're sick in your body, your mind, your spirit, and any, any part of you is not as right as it could be, if you're maybe feeling shame that you've never been able to shake off, uh, or anything else, it doesn't have to be anything that I've spoken about, if you want a touch with the Holy Spirit, then just, uh, just come and we'll pray for you.